God, the story of you sending your son to rescue and to redeem and to restore is an incredible story. Some of us right now are so uh, in love with Jesus, so passionately on fire for your son and, and, and filled with love for you, and it drives our whole lives. But some of us aren't there. Some of us don't yet know what to do with Jesus. Some of us are not sure how to respond to you. Some of us are not even sure that, that you, God, exist. And some of us have, have heard this story so many times that our hearts have sort of become insulated to it. It's not a, a fresh story to us. It's not a new story. It's something that we have heard for a long time. And, and so for some of us, it, it's easy to sort of be complacent, to get used to it. And I pray, God, that, that you would use your word and that you would send your spirit to empower your word to enliven our hearts again for how beautiful Jesus really is. I pray that again you would bring us to a sense of awe at you. I pray this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. Amen. I want to ask you a question uh, here. Has any of you ever met anyone who's really famous? Anyone? Yes? No? You want moderately famous? Someone that like at least maybe a thousand people have heard their name? Uh, I've, I've not met anyone super famous in my life, uh, but I, I have to think that in my limited experience of meeting well-known people, it, it has to be more often than not probably a bit of an underwhelming experience to uh, meet someone famous. For those of you who have, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, but I remember uh, one time uh, Dr. James I. Packer was scheduled to preach at our church, and probably less than half of you even know who uh, Dr. Packer is. Um, but I was a theology student at the time, and I was really excited. He wrote the book uh, Knowing God that has sold a bunch of copies and stuff like that. So as far as uh, evangelical theologians, he is a really sharp guy. And, and so for me, it was really exciting to have him uh, there and preaching. But then uh, my, my reaction changed a little bit when I saw him step up uh, to the pulpit to preach. Uh, I, I remember thinking, oh, he, he's a small feeble, frail-looking old man. And, and my next thought, I'm not joking, my next thought was, I hope he doesn't die while he's preaching. <laughs> not, not, kidding, not kidding. And then it got worse because I saw the text that he was preaching on was from Paul's letter to Timothy where he says, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, or I've run well. I thought, oh no, he's going to preach this sermon. It's going to be his last. He's going to die up there after preaching. He did not, in fact, die that day, which was good. And the sermon was, in fact, very powerful. But just seeing his, his feebleness, seeing the frailty of a, an ordinary person solidified this to me. As smart as someone is, as great of a person as they are, we're all just humans, which means that we are all sinful and flawed beings. The, the most extraordinary of us. Some of us have extraordinary gifts. Some people gain legendary status. Right? They become super, super famous but when all is said and done, even the most talented person in the world is another human, which means that they are frail, they are flawed, and they are sinful. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but sometimes I, I look back at the, the heroes of the Bible, or I look back at the early church, and I, 
I kind of think that, that the early Christians must have been these super Christians. They must have been super people, superhumans. They seem like, you know, you look at the things that God has done through them and you think, well, God has used them in extraordinary ways. These must be really special people. But one of the things I love about uh, how the Bible tells the story of God's redemption is that it seems to go out of its way to kind of dispel our myths about all of the Bible heroes. It seems like every single one of them that has anything much mentioned at all, the Bible points out that they are, in fact, very deeply sinful and flawed people. Every single human in the history of the world, from the beginning through now until Christ comes again, has been sinful and flawed, all except one the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death to rescue the rest of us who are sinful and flawed humans. But the truth is that every single human in the history of the world has been deeply flawed and deeply sinful. And that truth is going to come out almost immediately in the passage of Acts that we have uh, before us this morning What is remarkable, we're going to discover here, is that what's remarkable is not the great gifting of the early Christians. What is remarkable is that God would choose to work powerfully through such flawed people. So today we're in Acts chapter 15, verse 36, through chapter 16, verse 40. Uh, If you um, have a Bible, that would be a good time to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can borrow one of the Pew Bibles. You could even take one home if you want. If you don't know where Acts is, in the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1095. Acts 15, 36 through 16, 40. As we look at this intro here, it actually gives me a lot of comfort to learn that these early Christians were just ordinary, sinful, flawed human people just like us. And it gives me hope that God might actually use people like you and me who know our sin and know our flaws. And it actually even excites me that God does do that kind of work, and it excites me that he will today as well. So as we look at this passage today, uh, we're going to have three themes emerge uh, from the text here. Uh, The first theme is frustration, the second one is faithfulness, and the third one is fruit. Now, do you notice that? Three F's. I think this is the first time in my preaching career I've had alliteration with three points, all starting with the same letter. Write it down because it's probably not going to happen again. Frustration, faithfulness, and fruit. Let's look at the text together. The first theme that emerges as we uh, get into this uh, passage is the theme of frustration. Look at chapter 15, starting in verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, this starts off with a really good idea. Paul and Barnabas are going to go back to these young churches where they preach the gospel, where God worked powerfully, and they're going to strengthen them. They're going to build them up, disciple them, teach them more about uh, the ministry and the life of Jesus and how that affects the church today. So the second missionary journey is about to get off the ground. 
except that they can't even leave the city of Antioch without running into trouble. Barnabas, who's ever the encourager, wants to take along his cousin, John Mark, with them because he sees that he could be really useful on this uh, missionary journey. But Paul, who's ever seeing the, the work at hand as the important thing, sees that that John Mark is a liability. He deserted them on the earlier trip, so why give him another chance now? And they come to such a, a they get into this really big fight about this. The, the word that's translated here in my translation is a sharp disagreement in verse 39. That's a really powerful word. It's a rare word in the Bible, but it's, it has a lot of emotional weight to it. It's used a couple times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the furious anger of the Lord. So this isn't like two guys who are calmly saying, okay, well, I don't want to bring him. I want to bring him. Let's part ways. And this is a sharp disagreement. They're probably yelling. They're, they're probably got clenched fists. There's, there's a sharp disagreement here, so much so that they divide and go their separate ways. I mean, you can imagine the frustration of these two men. They've been on a missionary trip together. They've seen God do powerful things through their joint ministry, Paul and Barnabas. And both have legitimate points, right? I mean, look at, look at both of them. You can see both sides of this argument. You can see that Barnabas has a good point. You see that Paul has a good point. They both have good points, but they can't come to agreement on it. They want to go minister to these young Christians, but they can't even leave their own church in peace. I mean, it's a really frustrating situation. But God is in control, and he's actually even going to use this division to accomplish his purposes. Now he's got two missionary teams who are going to go out. Barnabas and John Mark, Paul and Silas. We're not going to hear much more about Barnabas and John Mark, but we're going to follow now. Acts is going to follow Paul and Silas's trip. And by the way, just to make you feel better, there is evidence that later they reconciled. Paul in his later letters speaks very glowingly of John Mark, and he speaks highly of Barnabas. So if you were worried that they were just split forever, that doesn't happen. They do get reconciled in the end. The gospel does reconcile relationships. But after this initial frustration, the mission trip finally gets off the ground. So we start chapter 16. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along in the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So Paul's now adding to his missionary team. He's got Silas. Now he meets Timothy, well commended. He's going to take him on the trip too. Now just a quick note here. It might be surprising to us to see that, that Paul has Timothy circumcised after chapter 15 of Acts where we learned that circumcision is not necessary for salvation. It might seem a bit inconsistent at first that Paul would have him do this. But notice, this isn't about salvation. Of course, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. There's, there's a missional reason for this. That's the impulse of why he's having Timothy be circumcised. Uh, Timothy was half Jewish through his mother, so to Jews he would have been considered an apostate Jew because he hadn't been circumcised. So Paul wants to keep doors to uh, unbelieving Jews open so he has him circumcised so they can still preach the gospel without boundaries to Jewish people who need to hear Jesus. Anyway, they continue on their trip, and immediately we come across another roadblock. Look at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now let's stop there. Who kept them from preaching the gospel in the province of Asia? The Holy Spirit. 
I mean, this doesn't make any sense, right? God is keeping them from preaching the gospel somewhere that needs to hear the gospel. I mean, it's bad enough that there's a difference between Paul and Silas that, uh, Paul and Barnabas, excuse me, that, that keeps them from going together to minister in the gospel. And now God himself is getting in the way. Verse 7. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Again, I mean, this is a really frustrating situation. I mean, so far, think about this mission trip. So far, everything has gone wrong. It seems like everything is against them. They've got internal disagreements before they even leave their sending church in Antioch. Now God is stopping them at one place. Now God is stopping another place. They're stuck and they don't know where to turn. It's, it's a really frustrating situation. For most of us, this is the kind of frustration that would just make us throw in the towel and say, I'm done. I give up, right? I, I'm trying to do this thing. I feel called to do this thing, but, but there's roadblocks after time, after time, after time. Why is everything so difficult? Why is everyone against me? Uh, last week in, in the marriage small group that meets uh, Sunday mornings at 9.15 in the adult classroom over there, you can still join us if you'd like, uh, but the teacher, Paul Tripp, was talking about how angry and how frustrated we get with these uh, everyday, ordinary frustrations that pop up. So you, you go into the bathroom at your home and the toilet paper roll is empty. Or you go to pour yourself a glass of milk and you open the refrigerator and you get out the milk and there are two drops of milk left. Or you're driving along US 10 and the person in front of you is driving 20 miles an hour when it's a sunny day and there's no snow or ice on the road. 20 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone. He, he jokes that somehow our first response in these situations is not well, God is sovereign. You know, he must have something that he wants me to learn from this, right? Okay, that's a really churchy joke. Let me just explain that if you're not from a churchy kind of a background. Sovereign just means that God is in control. What the Bible says about God is that he is king over everything. He's in control over everything. He knows everything that is happening. So we, we tend to think, right, that God is over just the big things. So God does the big things, and then he kind of lets the little things uh, go. But actually, the Bible speaks the opposite of that. Jesus says this in, in Matthew 10. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. In other words, he's sovereign, not just over the big things, but he is in control over all things. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing that it happens. God knows all things and he controls all things. That's what God's sovereignty is about. And yet when it comes to these frustrating situations in our lives, that's not the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, okay, well, God is sovereign. He must have something for me to learn in this moment. Emily and I have actually been joking about this uh, all week long. Something will happen, a big frustration or a little frustration, and we'll kind of say to one another, like I sent her a text uh, halfway through the workday one day saying, well, God is sovereign, and we kind of joke about it. But the, the interesting thing that is, it's actually been tremendously helpful for us because it totally changes our perspective. It gives us a better lens through which to see whatever is happening right there. Because it's that subtle reminder, oh, God is in control. We're joking about it, but we're also telling each other the truth. God is sovereign. He is in control. And what a relief that is. Because that means then it's okay that I don't know why this is happening. It's okay then that I don't know how to fix this. It's okay then that I can't seem to accomplish what I feel like I need to accomplish. It's okay because God knows 
And God is in control. And what a relief it is to know that God is sovereign, to know that he is in control, and to allow God to be God. And so as we look at this first theme, we, we, we feel the frustration with these missionaries as they're trying to, to go and to bring the gospel, and they're, they're having internal disagreements, they're having God blocking them off here and there, and they're not sure where to, you can feel the frustration, but at the same time, the answer to it is God himself. God is the answer to the frustration that they're feeling. I mean, the situations are very frustrating, but God is the one who is in control God knows, and God will direct, and He will guide, and He will accomplish His purposes. And that brings us to the second theme then, the theme of faithfulness. Look at how these missionaries respond. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 16. This is after being blocked off on two different occasions. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I mean, thank goodness, right? What a sigh of relief that after being blocked in here, blocked in there by God, now finally they understand where God is calling them to go. They conclude this vision that Paul has in the night is God giving them direction. And so how do they respond? Immediately, at once, Luke says, they go. And notice, by the way, there's a subtle change in the preposition Luke's been saying, they went, they did this, they did that. Suddenly, in verse 10, he says, we got ready at once to go. And it's a subtle indication there. Luke is actually putting himself into the story. It's it's probable that he was then on this missionary journey, joining Timothy, Silas, and Paul on this trip. So it's a fun little note there. Verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So we're going to come back to Lydia in the last section here. But for now, see that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they are faithfully obeying God's call to preach the gospel in this city in Macedonia. So they, they take the same strategy they have elsewhere, right? They go first to the Jewish people. Normally they would go to enter a city and then go to the synagogue, proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, the king that God had promised to rescue his people. And then from there, they continue to preach the gospel. Well, it looks like Philippi was a small enough town that they didn't have, or a small enough uh, group of God-fearers, of Jewish believers, uh, that they didn't have a full synagogue there. So they just had a place of prayer outside the city by the river. So that's where they go. Again, they start with those who are worshiping the true God, like Lydia. She was a a God-fearer. She wasn't a Jewish person, but she was a God-fearer. She worshiped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the true God. So they're going faithfully and bringing the gospel to them. So Paul and his, his companions, right? I love to see that the eagerness that they go on this journey. So you look at verse 9, they get this vision, and then in verse 10, at once, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. And so as soon as they get directions, they're just hopping on there and just going. 
Uh, I love the, the eagerness here. You can imagine the, the built-up anticipation because they're trying to go out and they're being blocked here, they're being blocked there. Finally, they get the word from God and they're able to sprint ahead with this. It makes me uh, think of the, the eagerness of, of husky sled dogs. I don't know if you've ever watched the start of any kind of uh, sled dog race, but, but these dogs love to run. They love to pull. And so if you ever watch the, ever get a chance to look at a YouTube clip or something like that at the beginning of the Iditarod or some other dog sled race, you'll see these dogs, they're, they're, first off, there's a snow hook or something to, to keep the sled back so they can't go anywhere. But as you're looking, the dogs are just like jumping there, uh, jump at the harness, jump at the harness, jump at the harness. And finally, when that, that hook is released and they're able to go down the trail, they just shoot off, sprinting right off the bat. Just they can't wait to run down the trail and to go. And that's how I picture Paul and his, his team here. They, they, they feel so eager to just go and to do the work that God has called them to do. So, so sled dogs are, are born to pull and to run. And Christians are reborn to talk about Jesus and to tell others about him. And I think the reason that the Christians here, these missionaries, are so eager to go and to proclaim Jesus is because they understand that God is in control. So finally, they have this word from God, so they're able to to go and to proclaim the message with confidence because they know that God is in control. And so they can be faithful to that call to bring the gospel. So first you get the theme of frustration as we see all these roadblocks to the gospel message. And now we see the the missionaries being faithful to the call uh, to bring the gospel to other regions. And now that brings us to the third theme here, which is the theme of fruit. God gives fruit here. Now we're going to see three different people encounter the power of God in the city of Philippi. And this theme actually really started in the previous theme. These three themes are are all wrapped up together. It's not like that portion is just this, that portion is just this. These themes are all wrapped up in the same story here. So this theme of fruit really started back with Lydia. She's the first person in Philippi that we hear encountering the power of the gospel. And how does that happen? Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So where does fruit come from? It comes from the activity of God. So yes, these ministers, Paul is proclaiming the gospel. He's being faithful in that. But fruit comes when God opens hearts to receive that message with joy and to transform lives. So a little bit about uh, Lydia that we learn here. Lydia is portrayed as an independent Gentile businesswoman who was worshiping the true God. She was a God-fearer. She likely was very wealthy, as shown by her trade. She was a a, a trader of purple cloth, which was an expensive kind of cloth, and and also by the size of her home. She was able to invite this missionary team into her home, which meant that she was probably a pretty wealthy woman. So she's the first one in Philippi to encounter the power of God. The second person to encounter the power of God is, is from a very different social sphere. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, this slave girl is in many ways the opposite of Lydia, right? Lydia is an independent, wealthy businesswoman. This is a slave girl. Not only is she enslaved to her masters, but she also is possessed by a spirit. So she's kind of doubly exploited, doubly enslaved. 
Now, probably the, the people around her thought that this was a positive spirit, and for sure her owners thought this was a positive spirit because they could turn this into a, a great deal of profit for themselves. But still, she is being subjected here. She is in bondage. But the interesting thing here is that we see that the Spirit's actually making her say true things. So in verse 17, it's true that, that Paul and his companions are servants of the Most High God. It's true that they're announcing salvation to the people. But from that slave girl's lips, through that Spirit probably that would not have been understood in anything approaching the right way because they had a very different idea of what, who the Most High God was and a very different idea of what salvation was. In any case, Paul finally gets fed up with all of this and he turns around in exasperation, commands the Spirit to come out of her, and immediately it does. So this slave girl is the second person then to experience the transforming power of God. Now, we don't know, uh, Luke doesn't tell us if she became a follower of Jesus or not, but at a minimum, she was released from this spirit that had been uh, over her. So she experienced the power of God too, the rescuing power of God. Now, there's, that brings us then to the, a point of uh, controversy where a third person is going to encounter the power of the gospel. Look at verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Again, we see that these three themes are all wrapped up together now. We get frustrating, frustrating circumstances again as they're put in jail. We get the faithfulness of the people to continue to proclaim here. But, but here we see that, that Paul and Silas are treated really badly because the power of the gospel has affected someone's pocketbook. And when it affects someone's pocketbook, there's going to be opposition. So they are stripped, they're beaten severely, they're thrown into prison, their feet are put in stocks. And by the way, these stocks are not just something to hold them there. They're actually kind of a, a torture item. They're meant to make it so there's no way that they could be comfortable. It's probably why they're up in the middle of the night, as we'll see in the next verse. Now, how, you think, how on earth is this going to turn out well? Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, we read a verse like this after seeing all the circumstances leading up to it, and this is probably one of those times where we're tempted to think that people like Paul and Silas are super-Christians, right? Here they are. They've been severely beaten. The Romans were not kind and gentle to prisoners. They've been humiliated, stripped, put in prison in these torturous footstocks. This is a bad situation, and what they're doing is they are singing hymns of praise to God. In other words, what they're doing is being faithful. They're witnessing to the power of God before the prisoners who are around them. But we have to be careful here. It's not because they are superhuman or super saints. It's because they believe that God is in control. It's because God is sovereign that they're able to be faithful in this circumstance. So they're singing to God, and God's about to respond in power. Look at verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. 
And this is a great act of God, right? Now our heroes are able to get out of the prison and go back into the city of Philippi, proclaim the gospel, and hopefully a bunch more people are going to come to believe. They've been freed from jail. Except that they don't leave. This too becomes an opportunity for the gospel. Look at verse 27. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So God uses this imprisonment and this really harsh treatment. He uses another really frustrating situation to bring salvation to another pretty unlikely candidate. He's a Roman jailer. I mean, in the context of this story, this jailer is on the side of the powerful people who are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And yet with one act of God, it reverses the whole power structure and leads this man who was on the side of the power before to ask this crucial question, what must I do to be saved? In other words, this is a mess I am in. I need some kind of rescue. I see now that I am not in a position of power. What must I do to be saved? And they're able to proclaim the gospel. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And at that, so they're up all night. He's treating their wounds, giving them a meal. And how does he respond? Joy. Time and time again in the book of Acts, joy is the response of those who've been rescued by God. Let's finish off the story. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. And it's kind of funny to hear on, on Paul kind of calling them out and making them kind of reverse the humiliation that they had felt before. But, but probably the reason he's doing this is because he knows that the Christians who are here, this young church that's forming, they need the public recognition of wrongdoing by these magistrates. But look at this, the theme that emerges here, the, the, three, the theme of fruit that comes out in Philippi with these three people encountering the power of God. This really makes the, the frustration all worth it. It makes the faithfulness through all that frustration all worth it because God is bringing fruit. People are encountering the saving power of Jesus Christ through God. And, but I want you to look at the, the three people who encounter the power of, of God here. They're very different people, right? It's a, it's a wealthy, independent businesswoman. It's a slave girl. Even if she didn't follow Jesus, she was rescued by God. And it's a Roman jailer. 
This is a really diverse group. And the diversity of these three people who encounter the power of God demonstrates the truth that's been told again and again in the book of Acts. Jesus is for everyone. And this is a crucial truth for us to to learn again and again and again because we can forget that this is true. But no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, Jesus is for you. He offers salvation to everyone. And that's what this diverse group in Philippi demonstrates. So despite frustrations... The missionaries are faithful to testify to God, and then God brings the fruit of changed lives, that the fruit of this missionary activity is changed lives. They're seeing people transformed by the gospel, rescued, redeemed by Jesus Christ as they put their faith in him and turn to God. And the important thing for us to remember here is that all of this is the work of God right? I mean, that, that's the, the most important lesson as we look at this. God is in control. If you don't get anything else, understand this. God is in control. God guides his people and he grows his kingdom. He is in control and God is on the move. God is a missionary God. He gathers a people to himself and he sends them out in the name of Jesus to proclaim this great rescue that he has accomplished and that he is accomplishing through Jesus. We now are heralds of that message of salvation that that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life for us, to die on the cross, to remove the penalty of our sins and offer us forgiveness and reconciliation in him. And he rose from the grave saying that death is not the final word anymore. And he will come again at the end to restore all things. I mean, this is the message that we then get to go out with because we know this is true, that God is in control. And he sends his people then out. He will guide us and send us and he will grow his kingdom. Now, I want us to do some some self-reflection here for a minute. As as you look at this passage, as you think about these themes of frustration and faithfulness and fruit, I, I want you to ask yourself this question. I'll take a second on this. Which of those three themes do you most identify with right now? What's your level of frustration right now in life and in thinking about the work that God has called you to? What's your level of frustration? Do you feel like there are roadblocks everywhere and you're just stuck? Or do you feel like, no, God has opened doors and you're walking through them? Or what's your level of faithfulness? Do you feel, again, like you don't have the, the strength in yourself to, to even faithfully do what God has called you to do? Or do you feel like you've been equipped and empowered and you're sent out? Do you feel like, yes, I'm, I'm going, I'm being faithful to what God has called me to do? What about fruit? What fruit are you seeing? Either God changing you and making you more Christ-like. Are you seeing the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience? Are they increasingly true in your life? And what are you seeing God use you to do in the lives of others? What fruit are you seeing in your life? Do you feel like it's, it's really bare, it's really empty? Or do you feel like God is, is just filling you with his spirit and if you're overflowing with fruit for him? We could take a step back from that too. Because the truth is that, that some of us are right now searching. We're not really sure what to do with God. We're not really sure what to do with Jesus. The starting point for us is to figure that out. Who is this Jesus really? Do I really believe what the Bible says about him is true? Do I really believe that God is in control? Do I believe that enough that it's actually going to transform how I live every day of my life? And for those of us who who are Christians, who are longtime Christians, I have a kind of a heart check question for us. As we read the book of Acts, Do the stories in here stir your heart? 
Do they give you a desire to be used by God? Do they give you eyes to see that God is alive and active today? Or do you read these and think, I just don't see it anymore. I don't really believe that God's doing this. I haven't seen Him work in powerful ways. I know that that some of you have friends and family members that you desperately want to know Jesus. Several months ago, I asked you to fill out little index cards. Just write the name of someone that God has put on your heart that, that's outside of Christ and, and praying that God would use you boldly in their life. And, and I get a whole stack of them that I keep with me and praying through those. And So I know that there are people that are on your hearts that you so desperately want to come to know Jesus because, because Jesus means the world to you. You know that in Jesus, you, you have life. You know that in Jesus you are accepted by God. You used to be God's enemies. You used to be in darkness, dead, but now you are alive in Christ. You are accepted. You are a son, a daughter of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus means the world to you, and you want other people to experience what you have experienced because Jesus is everything to you. But there are people that you love that, that have not yet turned to Jesus. They've not yet bowed their knee to him. Right now they're living in rejection of Jesus. He is not their king. And you know from reading the Bible what rejection means for them. It has eternal consequences. What what rejecting Jesus as king means is that you're going to spend eternity separated from God. You're positioning yourself as an enemy of God. What is at stake here is eternity. And so you so badly want them to turn to Jesus. But here's what you discover. You can't make that decision for someone else. It's a very hard reality, but it's true. You so badly want someone to come and put their faith in Jesus, but you cannot make it happen. I want this for my kids. Let's make this personal. Think of someone who you so badly want to come to Jesus. Get them in your mind. I, I think of my kids. I so badly want my kids to make Jesus their king. I so badly want them to treasure God more than anything else in the world. But the truth is that I can't make them Choose that path. And some of us right now are living with the burden of people that we so desperately love who are rejecting God and turning away from Him. I want you to see, as you look at the book of Acts, and specifically even in this passage of Acts, that there is hope here because God is sovereign. He is in control. And this shows that God is a missionary God. He's, he's sending his people out with the gospel. He's gathering a people to himself in the name of Jesus from, the Bible says, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Jesus is for everyone. And this sovereign missionary God is gathering to himself more and more people. He is redeeming. He is rescuing. No one is outside of the grip of God's love. God is calling people to himself. And that means that there is hope, no matter what. I want to give you a couple things to do. If you feel really frustrated in this, or if you're really stuck, or if you're not sure what to do next, the first thing to do is is to pray. I mean, this is huge because it's an acknowledgement that God really is in control, and that if anything is going to change in any of our lives, it's the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason that the book of Acts is such a powerful account is because again and again and again, it's the work of the triune God. It's the Father sending the Son and then giving His Spirit to proclaim the truth about the Son so that people will glorify God and worship Him forever. 
And that's the story of the book of Acts. So start with, start with prayer. And maybe getting even more practical, start with one or two names. A couple people that, that right now are outside of Christ, that are really close to your heart. Write them down. Write them down your bulletin right now if you want to. But take it home and be praying over these people. Spend, just make it a, we'll make it a defined time period. Spend one week every day, the next week, pray for those people. This is someone, and just lift them up to God. Express your frustration. Be honest before God. God, I, I'm not sure that this person is ever going to come to know you, but, but Jesus is so amazing. I want, I want them to have Jesus because they need Jesus so desperately. I want them to, and God, I don't know if they're ever going to come to faith in you, but God, would you please, by the power of your Spirit, change my heart so that I can talk to them about you, change my heart so that I have hope that you would actually work in their life, and God, would you please allow me to see this person come to faith in Jesus? Just start with prayer. One of the most powerful things that we can do as a church and as individuals. Get a couple people. Start praying desperately for them. I think we lose hope because, you know, we pray for them, someone for like two days and then God doesn't change their heart. And you think, well, God, I prayed for them. I, I, I really did. No. Faithful in prayer. Faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And the second thing I would say is this, and this, it's getting at our hearts. Preach the gospel to yourself every day when you wake up. Remember who you are and remember what Jesus has done for you. We were sinners, totally without hope, dead in our sins. But God, in his grace, sent Jesus to make us alive. We were people who deserved the punishment of hell forever. And yet God has made us his sons and his daughters in Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day because then your love for Christ will grow and will grow and will grow and you'll see that the truth of this, yes, God really is in control and I can rest in that. I don't have to have that anxiety, but I can rest that yes, God is indeed sovereign and he is a missionary God. And I want to be part of that. Please pray with me. God, I pray that you would bring us back to the joy of the gospel for those who are Christians here. I pray that you would send your spirit into our hearts to again proclaim the beauty of the gospel so that we would love Jesus more and more all the time. And God, I pray that you would give us the the perseverance to be faithful through frustrations and everything else. And God, I pray that in your grace, in your mercy that we do not deserve at all, you would allow us to see the fruit of changed lives. We want more and more people to find life in Jesus. And God, that includes people here who, who are not yet followers of Jesus. I pray that you would work in their hearts right now powerfully by your Spirit, Human words are not going to make any difference, but your spirit empowering your word is powerful and it changes lives. I pray that in your grace and in your mercy, you would do that even now, even this morning. We pray it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.